Welcome to the Eric Metaxas Show. It's the show everyone's talking about. But they really should be listening to it. Broadcasting from the Empire State Building because the Chrysler Building wasn't available. This is the Eric Metaxas Show. With your host, Eric Metaxas. Now, speaking of the Iran deal, I have on the line uh, my friend Joel Rosenberg calling us, no kidding, from Israel. Joel, are you there? I'm here. Good to be with you, Eric. How are you? And where are you? Uh, I am just a little bit north of Tel Aviv right now, and it is uh, it's evening, uh, um, early evening here in Israel. And uh, shalom from all of us over here. Well, sh- it's an exciting neighborhood. Shalom, right back at you, my friend. Uh, you, uh, you're someone that has written so many books. I, I wanted to, to say that up front, just because so many people listening right now probably read your books. What are the What are the bigger sellers of your books that people would be familiar with? Well, the first one was the Last Jihad that that uh, no one had ever heard of me, and that was uh, the book that spent 11 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list in 2002 because it opened with putting you inside the cockpit of a jet plane that had been hijacked by radical Islamic terrorists coming in on a kamikaze attack mission into an American city. I'd written it nine months before September 11th. You wrote it nine months before September 11th. Talk about God's timing. Pretty cool. It was. Well, it was eerie. It didn't feel cool at the time. Yeah, I I was going to say, as soon as the word cool came out of my mouth, I realized that's not the best adjective. But (laughs) extraordinary. The plot plot that led from that attack opening pages to the United States attacking Saddam Hussein, overthrowing him because of the linkage between terrorism and weapons of mass destruction. Regardless of what you thought about that happening in real life, the book came out five months before the war in Iraq. So no one had ever heard of me or cared. That book, The Last Jihad, just took people by, you know, how, where is this coming from? And that really set the, the, That's, the theory. Yeah, the that, that is that is absolutely amazing uh, how well that book did. But actually, it's not so amazing when you realize the context. It's extraordinary that you, you wrote this. But I have to ask you, I'm a writer. It would never occur to me to write this kind of a book. So before we start talking about the Iran deal uh, and what's happening today, writer to writer, I just want to ask you, how did you find yourself writing books like this? I mean, first of all, having the knowledge of geopolitics, of all of this kind of stuff, I don't know where you get that from. But what, what were you doing before? Before you wrote this huge bestseller, The Last Jihad? Well, Eric, my, I'm really a failed political consultant. So that's my <laughs> professional pedigree, uh, if we're honest. Uh, I, uh, everyone I ever worked for in politics lost. Uh, everyone? Retired, wow. Never went back. Anybody, yeah. did, they, did they deserve to lose any of them? No, they all deserve to win. I worked for Jack Kemp. I worked for Bill Bennett. Uh, went on to work for Steve Forbes, helped him lose two presidential campaigns. Good for you. Good for million you. million of his daughter's inheritance money. But right. we were trying to move the ball forward. Uh, later, I worked for then-former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu wow. in Israel. Uh, now, at the time, he had just, uh, you know, he'd been Prime Minister. He lost. He was preparing a comeback. I was on his comeback campaign. Right. I will note that was in the year 2000. It took him nine years to come back. Right. And I, I played no difference. But, but what happened <laughs> in those years <laughs> was that I got to spend time with some really remarkable leaders in business, in politics, in, in geopolitics. Right. Uh, 
Netanyahu being one of them, Natan Sharansky, one of the great Jewish uh, leaders in the world, uh, was another. And I got to work with their teams and with the, the people that advised them. And out of that came an idea, and that was, what if I wrote not op-eds and speeches primarily, what if I began to tell stories that would visualize and help people understand what might be coming. Right. Some of the worst case scenarios. Right. And sometimes, as we know from Tolkien, from Lewis, uh, although I'm a pale comparison to any of them, but fiction can capture people's attention and draw them to issues of truth in a way that sometimes nonfiction can't. Oh, that's absolutely right. And I, and I think people, especially on the conservative side of things, have been very bad at this, that it's very important for us to understand that people process things via story, via the arts. Very often, that's how we process information. It's not just syllogisms and op-eds and, and facts. Those things are important, but uh, we, we have to put bone, meat on the bones sometimes. And in the novels that you've written and, uh, and very few others have, have written, I would say that it, it is, it's tremendously helpful because you begin to see things in a way that you can't see if you read them in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. That was the theory. I, I, I didn't expect, I, I couldn't have expected that what was an idea that I thought, all right, this, this is an idea that would help people see, Americans see, that maybe radical Islam is coming, maybe it's a danger, maybe we're going to have to get involved in ways that we never thought we would. I can't tell you, Eric, that I thought that, that people were literally going to hijack the airplanes and literally fly them oh. into America, and we were literally going into a war in Iraq. I wasn't trying to predict these things. I was trying to warn that these are the type of things that could be coming if we don't have leaders right. who understand the nature and threat of evil. Because if you misunderstand the nature and threat of evil, you risk being blindsided by it. Well, it sounds to me, it seems to me, and, and I am the opposite of an expert on this subject. It's why I was so excited to have you on, because you, you really know this from the inside out. But it, it seems to me that our president doesn't understand this. That's as much as I can I can tell. I can't talk too far on that. But give us the specifics. You, you say this Iran deal uh, is kind of a nightmare. Now, the question is, uh, specifically, why? Yeah, well... To put the headline right up front, I would say this deal is not only dangerous, it's insane. And I know that sounds pejorative, but let me just walk through some of the things. We were promised by President Obama, October 22nd, 2012, he was talking about doing negotiations with Iran. And he said, quote, the deal we'll accept is that they, Iran, end their nuclear program. It's very straightforward, unquote. Now, this deal in no way ends Iran's illegal nuclear program. Rather, it makes the program legal. It expands it. It extends it. It legitimizes it. And it funds the program. We are going to provide the West $150 billion to Iran in cash and in business contracts. We're going to remove economic sanctions to the worst terror regime on the planet. Okay, so t do me a they favor. They don't have to dismantle their program. They don't have to get rid of their program. They don't have to close well, down their program. I'm, I'm never surprised if this president is doing something that, that doesn't make sense because we have a, a record. I mean, it's very – it's horrifying to me what some of the things that he's done. But on this issue, help me to understand – 
what would be in the mind of someone like a John Kerry, like a Barack Obama? What are they thinking? Even though I know that it's it's erroneous thinking, what is it that would lead them to believe that this is a good deal? It is, it is an assessment. It, it all comes down in the end, Eric, to an assessment of the intentions and the motivations of the leaders of Iran. Right. So if you believe that the leaders of Iran um, have, have, have not been good players, admittedly, but that they want to get back in, they want to be in the international community, right. just like China wanted – uh, to get out of the Vietnam War right. and engage in trade with the United States. And Nixon went in the early 70s, a famous moment, Nixon goes to China, the anti-communist, and it, it has worked. I mean, that was a huge success. Reagan goes to Reykjavik. The anti-communist says, I think the new version of Soviet leadership is they're not going to be perfect, but I think they want to engage. Right. Let's try something different. And, and I believe that that's what President Obama and Secretary Clinton and Kerry believe about Iran. But I don't believe the evidence supports this assessment in any way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to cut you off there. We're going into a break. I'm talking to Joel Rosenberg, author of The Last Jihad and a zillion other bestsellers. He is right now just north of Tel Aviv in Israel. We're talking about the Iran deal. We'll be right back. It's the Eric Metaxas Show. Hey, you're listening to the Eric Metaxas Show. I'm talking to the great Joel Rosenberg, who is this minute on the phone in Israel, just north of Tel Aviv. Are you in a bunker or not? <laughs> I'm not, but you're not. our house does have one. <laughs> but your house has a bunker. Okay, just just che- just checking. Um, now, what? I wrote my most recent novel in a, in a bunker, though, in, in my house. Are you? You're not kidding. It, it seems like a good and apropos place. To write a book where you know I've got gas masks on the shelf, and I'm, I, my new series is—I recently wrote a series a couple years ago about an Iranian, an Israeli first strike on Iran. But this series is about uh, ISIS capturing chemical weapons in Syria and going crazy, and that's called the third target. And uh, yeah, this is a this is a crazy neighborhood. What is your What is your most Fire, recent book, Joel? You're thinking about who the leaders are here. What is your What is your most recent book? The most recent book came out in January. It comes out in uh, paperback uh, in October. It's called The Third Target. Oh, of course. About a New York Times reporter who hears a rumor that the Islamic State has captured chemical weapons and is planning a genocidal attack somewhere in the region. The, the Third Target by Joel Rosenberg. Well, let me ask you now: Why did you move? To Israel, because last we talked, you were on the verge of moving to Israel, moving your whole family there. What uh, what led you to do that? Well, it wasn't because I believed that U.S. foreign policy was getting better and that the Middle East was getting safer. I'll tell you that much. Uh, I'm Jewish on my father's side, Gentile on my mother's side. So you know, I'm a, and I'm an evangelical Christian by faith. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and I love God's word. And I'm fascinated by the fact that the Bible says that Jews will all return to Israel in uh, in the last days of history. That Israel will be recreated. Now, I've been teaching that, writing that, um, but it became our time. 
And so last year we filed the paperwork and we received our citizenship and moved here in August of 2014. As it happens, uh, that was in the middle of the Gaza war where 4,538 rockets and missiles were being fired at Israel uh, uh, during that month. Um, but we knew that God wanted us to do it, and uh, we came. And, and how far are you from the border? Where you, where you are right now, how far are you from the border of Israel? Well, uh, the border of uh, Syria, for example, is two and a half hours from us. Driving, ISIS, obviously. Genocide. Uh, we're 90 minutes south of Lebanon, where 100,000 Iranian-built missiles are aimed at us. We're about two and a half, three hours north of Gaza, where those 4,000 rockets came from last year. So it's not exact, and we're you know not far from the West Bank. And you said you're um, 90 minutes. Right now. You said you're 90 minutes from Lebanon. Right. It's funny because in New York, I think how far could you get in 90 minutes? That's about seven blocks in a taxi cab. Hard to believe, but okay. So you're this there. So it would be right. I mean, I mean, this, anybody who's listening across the country should think: who, where can I drive in ninety minutes to two hours, where they have the desire and the intention, and they're explicit with cutting my head off and killing all my children. Well, this is the thing. This is real for you. So your opinion on this uh, matters uh, to me, and that's why I wanted to hear from you. So tell us more about the Iran deal. Uh, you say this is based on an erroneous view that the current administration has that the people in Iran are somehow ready for change. Now, I've been hearing this kind of thing for years, that there are people in Iran, that the young people in Iran, for example, are open to the West, that, and that, so that these overtures are something which, which might make a difference. I guess that's the thinking yeah. of the administration. Now, so that's a nice idea, but the point is that, that if it works, great. But if it doesn't work, what happens? Well, it's all true that there are millions and millions and millions of Iranians who are completely sick of their tyrannical government. They want freedom. They, the, the, you know that the, um, it's illegal to have a satellite dish, for example, in Iran, and that's why everybody has one. They, they are thirsting for outside information. They want to connect with the East and the West. They, many of them are intrigued with America, but that is, that's not... But, but in 2009, when millions of Iranians turned out on the streets to try to overthrow the government, President Obama didn't lift a finger to help them. Right. So what he's doing instead is, is working with the regime. Now, the regime is completely different from the people. They... they let me just you know read a quote as, a, as an example. This is from... July 18th. So this is four days after the president hailed his new nuclear deal with Iran as a great achievement for world peace. Okay, so this isn't like 20 years ago. The Ayatollah Khamenei, the, the supreme leader of Iran, said in a speech four days after the deal was signed, the slogans of the Iranian nation show what its position is. And the slogans are death to Israel and death to America. He went on to say, even after this deal, our policy towards the arrogant U.S. will not change. Unbelievable. Now, some people say, well, no, wait a minute. That's just the, that's the Supreme Leader. He's the religious leader. He's not the government. Right. Okay, let's, let's quote Iranian President Hassan Rouhani, who has been widely hailed in the West as a moderate. 
Now I'm going to have to I'm going to have to cut you off right before that quote. We're going to be right back. Forgive me, Joel. I'm talking to Joel Rosenberg about the Iran deal. He is calling us from Israel, north of Tel Aviv. His books are The Last Jihad. That's the huge bestseller, and a million other great books. You're listening to the Eric Metaxa Show. We'll be right back with Joel Rosenberg. Listening to the Eric Metaxas Show and Neil Young. I'm on the phone with Joel Rosenberg, who's in Israel. Joel, you just before we went to the break, you were going to uh, give us a quote. Let me uh, tee you back up to do that because you're making an important point. We're talking about the Iran deal. Sure. Yeah, and I was saying that, that we we're just saying that, that uh, the supreme leader of Iran, uh, Khamenei, the Ayatollah, you know, has, has been saying that the policy of Iran is death to Israel and death to America, and this isn't going to change. And he said that four days after the deal was agreed to. But people say, well, that's the religious spiritual leader. What about the government leader? So let me quote Iranian President Hassan Rouhani. He's widely hailed in the West as a moderate. Right. Now, he has stated that death to America is the official Iranian policy that needs to be matched with action. He said, quote, saying death to America is easy. We need to express death to America with action. Now, that was May 8, 2013. So you have to understand that's what they're saying, not just 20 years ago, 25, 30, 40 years ago with the Ayatollah Khomeini, who began the Islamic Revolution and the death to America, death to Israel chants. So the question becomes, do you make a deal that makes it easier um, for Iran to get a path to the bomb? This deal allows two different paths to nuclear weapons for Iran. The first path is if Iran cheats. Okay? They obviously don't have to get rid of their infrastructure. They don't have to get rid of their uranium. They've got all this, their scientists and their equipment. The deal does not require them to get rid of that. I read the 159-page agreement. So if they cheat, um, they get the bomb. Okay? And we, the deal prevents 24 or 7 anywhere, anytime inspections, though the administration promised them. And it prevents inspection of any military facilities. So that's a problem. And we recently learned, right, that the UN's deal, side deal with Iran, allows Iran to do its own inspections, which is like letting Lance Armstrong do his own drug test. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. So that's the first path to the bomb, Iran cheats. The second path, however, is that they keep the deal. That's what's crazy. If they keep the deal, then in 15 years, all restrictions are removed. They have a legal program. They've had years to, to, to cheat without us knowing it, but uh, it mean not go 100% to the bomb, but just build other nuclear equipment. Right. And in 15 years, uh, they, can ha- they can do whatever they want. This is the most dangerous terror regime on the planet. Now, why do you think, again, in Congress and in the Senate right now, what are the odds this will pass? Do you have any idea of that? Well, Eric, maybe more than the deal itself, this bothers me enormously, and it should bother all Americans. Congress is taking a very strange view. The the Constitution is clear. The Constitution says that the president may submit a treaty to the Senate, and if it passes by two-thirds of the senators, uh, then it's then it's law, right? Then it's a ratified treaty. So that would mean President Obama would need 67 senators to be able to go forward and do this treaty. He has decided not to call it a treaty and to submit it 
uh, differently, and and Congress is allowing him to do it. So now, if Congress votes and the and it doesn't pass, and in other words, they have to vote in the negative. They have to vote to turn it down. But if he vetoes their bill, it becomes law. It doesn't become a treaty, but it goes into effect. Now, this is unconstitutional. The Republican leadership should be ashamed of itself. Who, specifically, who in the Republican leadership, if you don't mind my asking, who do you think should be uh, most ashamed of himself or herself on this on this issue of not taking leadership? Well, in this particular case, this is a primarily a Senate issue in the Constitution. So Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell should have never— and why do you think he did? The president well, uh, take an extra constitutional route. This is the kind of thing I don't understand. Why do you think Mitch McConnell did allow this to go the way it's gone? Because the, the administration was signaling it wasn't going to send this up to the uh, to the Hill as a treaty anyway. And in fact, I have a quote, which uh, you know I've done a 17-page analysis of all this that I've got on my blog at joelrosenberg.com. 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 Right. Go, okay. go to the blog. Yeah, if you want more information, check that out. Okay, so. But the short version is the House and Senate felt that it needed to find a way to force the administration to disclose every detail of the deal and, and with bipartisan support. But this was a big mistake. The Constitution's clear, Eric. The, the, the Republican leadership, the Democratic leadership, don't need to come up with new ideas. If the Constitution had never mentioned the concept of an international treaty, then you come up with your own bill. But if you treat it as a treaty, then it loses. Right. This is why they're not going to submit it, because Secretary Kerry said explicitly, we, we're not submitting it because it won't pass. Well, why won't it pass? Because the American people know instinctively. The more they learn about this deal, the more crazy, insane it becomes. Because you're basing the security of the United States and our allies on genocidal leadership in Iran that says its policy is to destroy us and our allies. Now, it's it's obvious that uh, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is not uh, excited about this. What do you think Israel, where you are this minute as we talk, what do you think Israel is prepared to do? Do you think Israel is prepared to do a first strike on nuclear facilities? What do you think is happening in the mind of of, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu? They are absolutely prepared to take a first strike if they need to. Now, you have to understand historically, uh, Israel has felt threatened by two foreign nuclear programs uh, in the Middle East uh, in, in recent history. Uh, and they took uh, military action preemptively right. in both cases to destroy it. The first right. time was 1981 right. to destroy the Iraqi nuclear program, then 2007 to destroy the Syrian program. So they're ready. But there are some mitigating circumstances. Is it possible to, to thwart or neutralize the Iran nuclear program in some other way? Uh, covert action, what happened? Or... Could Israel wait for the next, you know, 18 months or so right. until a new administration, right. possibly more reasonable? Yeah, and well, possibly more reasonable. Who wouldn't be more reasonable? I think uh, Hillary Clinton well, or the devil would be more reasonable uh, on this issue. We've got to go to a break. We'll be right back for a final segment with Joel Rosenberg. He's in Israel right now, author of The Last Jihad, huge bestseller and a number of bestsellers. JoelRosenberg.com. This is the Eric Metaxas Show. We'll be right back. Save his money, 
listening to the Eric Metaxas Show. I'm on the phone with Joel Rosenberg, who is in Israel, north of Tel Aviv right now, an author of many bestsellers uh, on these geopolitical issues concerning the Middle East, tremendous novels. But right now we're talking about something unfortunately very real, the Iran deal that uh, our uh, current administration is putting forward. Now, Joel, uh, what do you think is going to happen? Because you have some prescience on these kinds of issues. What do you think? How, how is this going to play out? Well, well, first, let me go back to one point you made just before we left for the break. You said uh, you thought that Hillary Clinton might be better on this. No, she's embraced this deal. She has said that she will implement it, as has every member of the Democratic uh, Party leadership in terms of who are running for president. Now, there's been some exceptional um, uh, senators who have who have said well, my own senator Chuck uh, Schumer has has Chuck stood up Schumer, against it. That's an extraordinary uh, thing. Why do you think Chuck Schumer uh, stood against it? I think because I, he, because he's not doing it based on politics. He's not doing it to help the president. He's actually looking at the deal and saying, "I'm sorry, this deal actually is dangerous. It, it, it goes against all the red lines that the president said." would uh, would be too far. And remember, the president just said a couple days ago, yesterday, I think, that, that people who oppose this deal are crazy. That's what the president said. Yet the president himself said no deal is better than a bad deal. So he set up the premise, as did Clinton and Kerry and every other member of his, his, his cabinet, no deal is better than a bad deal. So you have to assess the deal. Is it good or is it bad? Now, I'm not talking about perfect. But this deal is not just dangerous, it's insane, because it, it, because it completely ignores the motivation of Iran's leadership. Now, let me make one more key point, and that is, you, you say, well, why would people make deals like that if it's not really effective? Well, go back to World War II and go back to, the, to 1938, and uh, Neville Chamberlain, the prime minister of Britain, meets with the Adolf Hitler, the head of the Nazi party in the right. Third Reich in Germany, and decides, no, I I can make a deal with this guy, and came home and said, peace is at hand. Yeah. And within a year, uh, Poland had been invaded, Czechoslovakia had been invaded, France had been invaded, and six million Jews were headed to the Holocaust because somebody thought that they were sharper, shrewder than a man who had written Mein Kampf to say, I'm going to kill everybody and take over the world. And he said it. Sometimes evil people say what they mean, and when we as sophisticated Westerners don't – when we misunderstand the nature and threat of evil, yeah. we risk being blindsided. Well, we're very bad at understanding evil because we're a very innocent country. Frankly, we have uh, had it very good for very long, and we don't understand that there are – they're really bad people out there doing bad things and telegraphing their intentions early. Very hard for us to believe in this in this wonderful, blessed uh, country in which we live. Um, we're just about out of time, uh, Joel. I want to encourage people to go to your website, joelrosenberg.com. As I said, Joel is in Israel now, has moved his family there, is living in the middle of all this, so speaks from with a particular perspective. We've just been talking about the Iran deal, but you can find out more if you go to joelrosenberg.com. And of course, there are a number of wonderful books written by the great Joel Rosenberg. Joel, thank you so much. We will certainly have you back to continue this conversation. Great to be with you, Eric. Blessings from Israel. Thank you. Back at you. And this is the Eric Metaxas Show. Go to metaxastalk.com. Thanks for listening.